millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, everyone, and welcome to My Millennium Money Professional. My name is Dev Raga, and I'm your host. And in this episode, we will go through some of the interesting questions I've received over the months in recent times uh, from listeners. Shout out to all of those that have actually asked questions, contacted me, and also the website, which I think is very beneficial for the rest of the Triple M community. So I go through these questions and I pick out the ones that I think will be relatively useful for the majority of the group. Let's get started. If you want me to discuss a specific topic or if you have a specific question, don't hesitate to contact me via Twitter or via Facebook. And for those of you that are new to the channel, remember the three main aims, education, empowerment, and entertainment. Question one comes from Caitlin, who asks, how do you challenge taking accrued leave versus getting paid overtime? Now, this is a great question, and there are two main things to understand here. Number one, accrued leave, and number two, time in loop. Now, I think Caitlin may mean the latter, but I'll discuss both concepts because it's a thing, especially for healthcare workers and practically any industry with award rates. Now, when you do overtime, you may have two main options at your workplace. The first option might be just getting paid overtime, which is traditionally, and this is entirely dependent on your professional, but I'm going to use a healthcare example based on our EBA, for example. Uh, But traditionally, when you do overtime, it's 1.5 times for the first two or three hours of that overtime, then it racks up to double time. So it's 2.0 times. Or the other option is you can actually ask for extra leave or time in lieu. But these are different things. My understanding is if you do work overtime, you do not get any additional leave accruals on top of that. But if you don't work overtime, then you can ask for extra time in lieu or perhaps some more annual leave, which is usually the same number of hours you worked extra. Here's how it works. Suppose you did an extra shift of eight hours. So that's technically overtime. And you have the option of getting paid the overtime. Now, supposing your base rate is $40 an hour, Your overtime rate for that eight-hour shift should be, traditionally, 1.5 multiplied by $40 for the first two hours, for example, and this entirely depends on your EBA. So that works out to be around $120. Then two times $40, which is $80 an hour, for the remainder of the six hours, which is $480. So in total, for that eight-hour extra overtime shift, you're getting paid $600 for that shift. Now, if you didn't get paid over time, then you would only have got paid $320, that is $40 per hour, multiplied by eight hours. So for that overtime shift, you got paid an extra $380 for that shift. Now, supposing you didn't opt for overtime payment, some organisations may give you what's called time in lieu, which is paid, and that's the critical In that case, you still work the eight hours, 
but this time you work it at normal time. So you still get paid $320 for that extra eight hours. Note, this is critical. If they say they won't pay you anything at all and you get paid time off in lieu, then I wouldn't take that deal ever. Then you get to your eight-hour day shift or off shift, that is your time in lieu, and perhaps still get paid $320 for that as well. So notice in this strategy, your income is now $320 for the actual shift plus $320 if they pay you for the additional time in lieu. So a total of $640. So notice that it's $40 more than had you actually worked the overtime. So what are the advantages of getting time in lieu versus accrued leave? Now, clearly in this worked example, you get a little bit more pay. And in fact, sometimes if the accrued leave is annual leave, in some professions, you also get paid a leave loading. So it actually may end up being significantly more beneficial. And again, depends on your profession, on your EBA, what you get paid, etc. And I'm really talking about employees here. I'm not talking about private contractors because unfortunately, private contractors don't get paid any sick leave, any annual leave, any accrued leave at all. Now, the second thing about the advantages of getting time in lieu or accrued leave is time is a valuable commodity. So you get some more free time and you may enjoy that. This is useful for those who are not motivated by money alone and are already working full time. And this strategy is a very powerful way for businesses to retain staff because it values work-life balance. Now, what are the disadvantages of getting paid time in lieu or accrued leave? Number one, it disproportionately affects those who work part-time. For those that work part-time already, they already have enough time to relax or maybe that's the whole point of working part-time. So having extra time in lieu may not mean that much to them. Number two, Giving them extra time may be pointless. It may even be a disadvantage for them. And number three is, there is an indirect cost to the organisation. By the worker taking an additional day off the organisation, it still pays for their time somewhere or another. This makes it less productive for that organisation. And number four, the main disadvantage for the employee is that they don't get the higher monies on the hand at the time of working. This means there is a level of opportunity cost or missed opportunities for the employee. Because, you know, if you get paid $600 for an overtime shift compared to $640 for an accrued leave situation, the leave is being used at a later time. Your money in hand initially is only that $320 if you took that option of accrued leave. But I'd rather have $600 in my hand with less taxes, etc., and blah, 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 because I could potentially use that money to pay off debt offset against my mortgage, invest in shares, ETFs, index funds, or have other investments which could make me more money. So you need to weigh up that opportunity cost between, you know, working overtime and getting paid time in lieu or accrued leave. Now, there's a caveat to all of this. Let's say your employer offers time in lieu for public holiday, where rates typically are significantly higher than overtime, usually at 2.5 times the base rate. Let's see how that plays out. Again, suppose 40 bucks an hour, that's your base rate, and suppose you did the same eight-hour day, now on a public holiday. Your rate of pay is, again, 40 bucks an hour, and you would have gotten paid $320 for that shift. With penalties, your public holiday pay now becomes $800 instead of that 320 
So now you get paid $480 more than your base. Notice in this example, your overall pay is $800, but in the overtime example, it's only $600. So in this example, if it's a public holiday, it is always worthwhile to work it. There are some health networks in Victoria, for example, and I'm in Victoria in the great city of Melbourne, who tend to promote this time and loop concept for public holiday work too. And I think that's a way of saving costs. I would always want to be paid public holiday rates if I'm working, rather than taking time in lieu. Now, if I'm not working, that's a different story. So there's little downside risk to the employee and their entitlements, which they can choose to exercise, if you choose to work a public holiday. Now, Caitlin, I hope this clarifies a scenario, and I didn't really get what profession you're in. Um, I'm assuming healthcare, but you need to really do your sums based on what the award rates are for your profession, and what the rules are for overtime, or what the rules are for public holiday, and what the rules are for accrued leave and time in lieu. So I think it's important to clarify what your contract states, what your award EBA is, and make sure you know your rights. Question two from Vin, who asks, perhaps Dev's experience in his medical career and also financial implications of different career paths within medicine, for example, different specialties, general practice versus surgery versus physician's training. It's a great question. It's a very common question that I get when I'm doing impromptu, you know, non-official career advice to a lot of, you know, residents and registrars who are in the public health system and really want a bit of an opinion from me about, you know, which career pathway they should choose. But Vin's asked a very specific question with relation to financial implications. So I'm going to put my financial hat on before I actually give Vin the real answer. My very basic answer is that in any profession in healthcare, a proceduralist almost always gets paid more than a non-proceduralist. I can't think of any non-proceduralist off the top of my head who routinely would earn more than a proceduralist. Now, there might be some exceptions, but it's not the norm. The main reason for this is doing procedures often involves more training years and more credentialing and sometimes more qualifications. And also it's difficult. Your indemnity is higher, the workload is higher, you take on more risk and you take on, you know, frankly, more cost in terms of trying to train to be a proceduralist. Now, this translates into, in quotations, higher worth of that person from a cost point of view, because they feel that their skill set is worth more. Well, you know, if you talk to a plumber who is a specialist in roof plumbing, for example, and I don't know anything about plumbing, and let's assume that roof plumbers, uh, you know, have to do a little bit more training a little bit more demand and, you know, they've got a lot more work opportunities, then the rate of pay is going to be higher. And it's the same way in healthcare. Now, the ATO always publishes highest incomers in Australia and always laugh at those numbers because those numbers are taxable incomes and not gross incomes. But even interrogating those numbers, you'll see proceduralists like surgeons and anaesthetists always top the list. Physicians are next and GPs are last. Now, non-proceduralists always fare worse off. So, Vin, is there a financial implication of choosing a healthcare profession or subspecialty, particularly within medicine? Absolutely. Doctors generally earn more than other healthcare professionals, like dentists, nurses, and allied health professionals. This is generally true. Within doctors, proceduralists earn more than non-proceduralists. That also is generally true. And a proceduralist is basically someone who does operations and procedures. 
And this is across the board in all specialties, including general practice, surgery, dermatology, cosmetics, physicians, etc. So, for example, if you're a cardiologist, you're deemed a physician. But if you're an interventional cardiologist, that is someone who, you know, does angiograms and pacemaker insertions, etc., your income is going to be higher than the cardiologist who does consultations in their rooms. If you're a GP, a community GP that sees patients in the community versus a community GP that has additional skills of doing skin cancer work, maybe a little bit of cosmetics, then your income as a proceduralist is going to be higher than the community GP who sees patients in the community and doesn't do any procedures. If you're a gastroenterologist who's a physician and does scopes and polypectomies, etc., then your income as a gastroenterologist proceduralist is going to be more than a gastroenterologist who doesn't do those procedures. And the list goes on. Radiology. Interventional radiologists generally make more money than non-interventional radiologists. Someone who reads x-rays, ultrasounds and CTs doesn't do any procedures. Surgeons, again, depending on the type of surgery you do, generally earn the highest income out of all of the specialties. Now, within the proceduralists, generally speaking again, surgeons and anaesthetists earn the highest. And within those specialties, likely the super specialties like neurosurgery, plastics, orthopaedics, ophthalmology, ENT, they often have the highest earners among them. But one of the catches here is they also are the most workers in terms of on-call, hours worked, number of years trained, difficulty in training, difficulty in getting into those surgical training programs or anaesthetic programs. It generally takes a lot more effort and a lot more years of training to do those subspecialties compared to other specialties. So, you know, on average, a surgeon from the start of medical school to becoming a fully-fledged surgeon and fellowship and etc., maybe looking at 20 years. So in that 20 years, could that person have done another specialty and finished early and started earning higher income? Quite possibly. But you can't become a high-earning proceduralist in medicine without actually studying for many, many years. It's not as if you become a GP specialist or a non-GP specialist overnight. It doesn't work like that. And similarly, if you're a CCU nurse or an ICU nurse or an ED nurse who's done postgrad qualifications, then you have extra qualifications, you have extra skills, which may command a higher rate. That's because you did that extra training and you get rewarded for it in the health system. Now, that's the official financial implications answer. But here's my take. Should you pick a specialty or profession based on the income gains of that profession? I don't think so. But you should pick a profession based on job prospects and future employability or starting a business. I think just choosing a specialty for the money is a red flag. And the reasons for doing it is all wrong. Question from Larissa, who's an osteopath, who asks, Dev, I'm struggling with asking for pay rises or charging more what I think I'm worth in my profession. There is a general consensus that we are in the industry to help people. And that money is only a byproduct of this, but I consider myself financially literate and believe that my experience grows and as it grows, so should my income. How do I back myself for asking or charging a higher rate per year upon year without seeming greedy or in it for the wrong reasons? I feel like no one in my profession even wants to talk about money as they don't want to seem greedy. This is a really tricky question, Larissa. And 
It's a really tricky topic to even discuss at the best of times, but I tend to agree with you on the whole that most people would say, oh, you get into healthcare because you want to help people and therefore, you know, money is not really that important. Now, healthcare workers are expected to put up and shut up and just keep going. That's generally what the perception that I get from people in the general public. And in fact, recently on Twitter, one particular person said that nurses should just rock up to work purely for the love of the job and not even worry about how much money they make. And I think that's ridiculous. If we utter anything about money in healthcare, it's immediately misconstrued in the media as being greedy or not loving our job for what it is and focusing on money. Well, guess what? Money is part of everyone's lives. Healthcare workers are not exempt from having to pay mortgages, bills, utilities, families to spend time with, holidays, school fees, kids' food, kids to raise, charities to give. I still have to pay my mortgage. I still have to pay my water bill. I can't ring up my water bill company and say, I'm a doctor, I save lives and I try and make people's lives better. I say, can you just waive my fee? doesn't work like that. I can't ring up the Reserve Bank governor and say, hey, Phil, can you like not raise interest rates just for me? Um, because, you know, Commonwealth Bank will do the same and Westpac will do the same, which will impact a lot of healthcare workers. I can't do that. I can't ring up my kid's school and say, hey, by the way, can I get a 50% discount because I'm a healthcare worker? I can't do that. So it's a real problem. And this notion that somehow we are sacrificial lambs in the whole scheme of things, I think is rubbish. And I don't buy into it. My philosophy in a nutshell is the majority of healthcare workers come to work, do the job well, and do it for the right reason. The majority don't wake up and want to harm people during the course of their daily lives and their daily work. The majority of healthcare workers do get shafted when it comes to pay and are underpaid, particularly in the public system. The majority of healthcare workers are financially loosely literate and need to learn a lot about it. The majority of healthcare workers should be paid for what they're worth. It's not rocket science. Just like I got a quote recently from a plumber, good plumber, gave me a quote, a little bit on the expensive side, but his job's well done. Great reviews on Google. That's what he charges because that's what he thinks his skill is worth. I don't see any reason why people like Larissa and physios and dentists and doctors can't do the same. The majority of healthcare workers also believe in affordable healthcare, but also know that healthcare is not free. Everything costs money. So when you go to a health service and you don't get charged an out-of-pocket expense, whether it be your GP, dentist, allied health professional, pharmacist for advice, surgeon, that's not because healthcare is free. That's because they've decided to absorb the cost of providing the healthcare so that your healthcare is affordable. I don't think they should be obliged to do that for everyone. And I don't think that's wrong in saying that because everyone has cost to bear. The surgeon has to pay College of Surgery fees every single year. The surgeon has to pay utility bills every single month. The GP who owns a practice has to pay the nurses and the receptionist their wages. The physiotherapist, the same. The pharmacist has to pay the bills to keep the lights on. So just because you're a healthcare worker doesn't mean you get things for cheap. So I think it's reasonable to charge what you're worth. Now to the question of how to charge for your service and back yourself asking for a pay rise. 
Now, I think you should just charge what you think is reasonable for your expertise. This comes up all the time with doctors. Majority of doctors just feel very uncomfortable charging a gap fee or even a private fee to their patients, particularly GPs. And ironically, once they switch, as what's happened, if you read in the media, I mean, GP practices just can't afford to bulk bill people en masse, so they're switching to private fees and increasing their fees, most patients actually don't complain. And I think patients accept that healthcare comes at a cost and nothing is free. There will always be patients who complain about everything. And we can't help this. I mean, recently, a patient put in a complaint at a private hospital that the doctor looking after them did not make them a cup of tea. I think that's nonsense. I think that needs to stop. It is not the doctor's role to make a patient's cup of tea. In fact, if the patient can get up and walk around, they should be doing this themselves. Every ward has a kitchenette. It's no one's role to make them a cup of tea. The hospital is not a hotel. It's a hospital. Complaints will always come, Larissa. But it's how you handle it, how your boss or executive handle it, which is really important. In private practice, you have every right, just like any plumber, any accountant, any lawyer, to charge what you think is fair and reasonable for what you're worth. If people don't want to pay for that, then they can have their say about it. They can protest about it. But people can't force independent practitioners, whichever profession you are, to charge what the patient thinks is appropriate. Imagine if I went to a lawyer and said, you're charging me 500 bucks an hour. I think you should only charge me $250 an hour. That would never fly. Now, having said this, and then going back to my philosophy, most healthcare workers believe in equitable healthcare, good standard of healthcare, safe healthcare, quality healthcare, and affordable healthcare. So you need to be mindful to set your fees at an appropriate level, which is fair and reasonable. And if it's not, then market forces will tell you very, very quickly. Now, if you're an employee, how do you ask for a pay rise or work as an independent practitioner and you're able to negotiate your service fees, which is essentially a pay rise? My recommendation is you've got to do your research. Have your side of the story straight and have a date and time for a meeting. Make it official. Why do you think you deserve a pay rise? And why do you think you deserve reduced service fees? And you could potentially say... I love working here and it could be as simple as what competitors are offering around where you work. So I deserve lesser service fees or I deserve a little bit of a pay rise because I've done my market research and people around here, this is the norm. Listen to the feedback from your boss or practice owner and accept that sometimes reductions in service fees is not possible because the cost of running a practice nowadays is much higher than ever before. And we all need to understand that. And we need to understand that a lot of our patients are also struggling. Mortgage rates going up, rents going up, cost of living going up. Everyone is not immune to this. So your patients may not be able to afford the higher fees that you charge. So when you set your fees, have some grace. Be prepared to negotiate. Now, I'm going to tie all of this together by using an example. Amy is a nurse practitioner and a diabetic educator. She's currently working independently in the GP practice where there is a higher than usual chronic disease burden and diabetic burden. She's currently working as an independent practitioner and charges a fee to see the patient. Her focus is diabetic management. Her service fees are currently at 40% of the practice and she keeps 60% of her total billings, including private. She's noted competitors 
offering 65% and a 35% service fee around where she works. She politely approaches her practice manager and practice principal and proposes the same service fee, that is, to reduce it from 40% to 35%. Unfortunately, due to some rising costs for the practice, they agree on a 37.5% service fee and a split of 62.5% for now, that's her billings, and review this in six months' time. Now, Amy is actually quite happy, even though she didn't get what she wanted, but it suited her as she likes her workplace and a client base and agrees to stick around the practice. So in this case, even though she didn't get what she wanted, she was transparent, she was honest, the practice manager seemed reasonable, and it's a bit of a win-win, and Amy was happy to stick around. Amy has every choice not to stick around, but she made the choice to stick around because she likes working at a practice, she likes the clients, she likes the patients, and she likes the people that she works with, and that's completely fine. So hopefully that answers your question overall, with a little bit of Devraga rant in between. Now, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we've got a couple of questions. One is about international ETFs, hedged versus non-hedged, and then we'll finish up with a question about, you know, should high-income earners invest in LICs versus ETFs. So be right back. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Okay, we're back. The next question is from Anon, who says, international ETFs hedging versus non-hedged, what are the pros and cons? I've done an episode on the concept of hedging in episode 240, if Anon is interested, but the question is specifically relating to ETFs, which are hedged versus non-hedged. Now, traditionally, when this sort of talk happens, they're talking about currency hedging, especially when it comes to international hedging. When you invest internationally, you're always vulnerable to currency fluctuations. With hedging, it eliminates this risk or seeks to minimise it. So how does it work? When you buy a currency-hedged ETF, essentially the ETF issuer does funky contracts called forward contracts. They do it with a third party. And this enables the buyer to set a particular exchange rate at a set time. 
And this means if the ETF value drops as a result of currency fluctuations, the forward contracts will sit in and hopefully offset those losses, remembering the buyer has already set their currency rates. Now, it's not foolproof. For example, if you buy an international ETF, which is currency hedged with the AUD, when the AUD gains in strength, then the underlying hedged ETF will do better than unhedged ETFs. But if the AUD loses its strength, the unhedged ETF will do better. So there's always some risk element to this both ways, even if you invest in hedged ETFs. Let's use an example to highlight this concept. Amy is a nurse who's considering investing in international ETFs, and she comes across two ETFs. Both ETFs have the same underlying holdings. ETF A is a hedged ETF against the AUD and tracks the NASDAQ 100. ETF B is unhedged against the AUD and tracks the same NASDAQ 100. Let's see what happens depending on the currency fluctuations. Number one, if the AUD appreciates, this means your ETF is worth less if you sold it. But remember, if the AUD appreciates against the USD, it means when you sell the ETF, you will get more AUD. And number two is if AUD depreciates, this means your ETF overall is worth more if you sold it. But remember, if the AUD depreciates against the USD, it means when you sell the ETF, you will get less AUD. So you can think about hedged ETFs akin to locking your interest rates for your home loan. If you fix it, you're somewhat protected against future interest rate fluctuations. For example, those at fixed rates in 2021 did well. As in 2022, the rates have gone up significantly and at the time of recording are still going up in 2023. But suppose you fixed five years ago, then you probably did a very bad job given the drop in rates in the last five years overall. Having said all of this, it's much of a muchness, I think, if you're in it for the long term. Over the long haul, it kind of all evens out, but you will need to do some research on this depending on which ETF specifically you want to invest in, hedged versus unhedged, and which currency you are thinking about hedging against. So Anon, hopefully that answers your question. Now, the last question for this episode is another anonymous question who asks, should high income earners invest in listed investment companies like AFIC with the bonus share plan or ETFs such as VAS or VGS? And the second part of the question is how much cash should we keep as reserve? Currently, I have 25% cash reserve versus 75% in shares. Now, I'll answer the second question first in terms of how much reserve you should have in terms of cash. I'm assuming when you say cash reserve, I'm talking about emergency funds. Um, There should be an emergency fund. And my general philosophy about this is emergency funds is I'm very conservative and I like to keep 12 months of income fully offset, preferably against my mortgage at all times. And of course, in 2022, this has proved immensely useful as interest rates have risen significantly, so my money is protecting me against the downside. Now, I don't have any principal place of residence debt because it's all equilibrium, but still, it makes me feel good that my money in offset is safely offset against my variable loan in my principal place of residence. Now, most people advocate for maybe three months or six months of funds to cover expenses, which is also fine. But personally, I prefer income, that is have 12 months of income ready to go because I don't want to stop investing during an emergency. I still want to keep my lifestyle. I still want to keep my 20% set aside money, pay yourself and then invest it during that emergency because I don't want my investments to stagnate. Now, what I mean by that is if there's a recession and if there's a bit of an emergency in your house and, you know, income drops or whatever like that, 
that's when you want to be continuously investing because in a recession, things are cheap. You want to be able to buy more stuff, right? Whereas you don't want to lose that opportunity. Now, I know this sort of advice is a little bit, you know, strange. You know, why would you want to invest during an emergency? Because finance is all behavioral. I don't want you to stop just because of an emergency. And having that buffer of an income of 12 months, I think is really important. Now, of course, in addition to all of this, I also recommend income protection, trauma insurance, life insurance, or TPD, and that's an additional buffer. And for public hospital workers or anyone in public work or those that are employed, you may wish to factor in things like sick leave into this as well, because that's kind of your emergency funds, which is unrealized. But that's only for sickness. So that's the easy answer done. How much cash reserves should you have? With respect to the first part of the question about high income earners buying LICs versus ETFs, let's dig into this a little bit more deeper. And this is going to be really geeky and I think it'll be really interesting for people that are really interested in this sort of stuff. And I think it's fascinating that you learn this early in your life. With LICs, some pay something called DSSPs, which are treated differently when compared to distributions and dividends. Now I've discussed dividends and distributions and DSSPs in these episodes, episode 118 about DSSP, episode 102, talk about dividend reinvestment plans, and episode 65, we talk specifically about dividends versus distributions, and episode 31, way back, uh, where we talk about dividend investing, and episode 20, again way back, when we talk about frank dividends. So let's define most of these terms. What is a distribution? Now, this term is usually used when we discuss managed funds or index funds or ETFs. It involves dividends and any interest payments and any capital gains from the investment. And once the fund pays out the distributions, the fund's price also declines by a similar amount and the net asset value also declines. That is a distribution. A dividend, on the other hand, is basically a cash reward to the investor who holds an investment. This can be in ETFs, mutual funds or individual shares. Now, usually dividends which are distributed are approved by the company's board of directors. And this is when we read in the news, for example, company ABC paid out dividends of a dollar per share to its investors. So if the investor owns 100 shares, they get $100 in dividends per year. And usually dividends are paid out quarterly or six monthly. Now, the investor has the choice of reinvesting the dividends back into the company if they wish or cashing it out and do as they please with it. Generally speaking, well-established companies or funds or ETFs pay distributions or dividends because of their well-established nature, whereas new companies don't pay out much dividends because they want to use all of their profits to grow the company, so they tend to reinvest the profits back into the business. So when a brand new company pays you dividends, you really have to ask yourself why, because they really should be growing the company because they're brand new, and any profits technically should be reinvested back into the business to produce a greater gain in the long term. So what is a DSSP, Dividend Substitution Share Plan? This is mainly offered by listed investment companies. Uh, Refer to my episode about this in detail in episode 36. But this is basically when rather than paying out a cash dividend, the LIC provides the dividends in the form of extra shares in that LIC. So suppose the dividend was meant to be $100 each year, and let's say each share in that LIC is worth $100, then rather than actually paying $100 in cash into your account, the LIC issues one share in your name to the same value as a reward for holding the LIC as an investment. So what's the big deal then? And this is what the question was all about. If you're a high income earner, 
why is it potentially beneficial to own an LIC rather than a company share or ETF? Number one is the big difference is that DSSP is tax differently. With dividends and distributions, the investor must declare them as income to the ATO, which is Australia's tax office. This is added to their income and they need to pay tax on it. Sure, the investor gets some franking credits and tax discounts, blah, blah, blah. Refer to my episode 20 where I talk about frank dividends, but fundamentally the ATO's position is any dividend or any distribution is declarable income. With the DSSP, on the other hand, the ATO's position is slightly different. Because it's given in the form of shares, it's not a cash dividend. So you don't need to declare it as income. Essentially, this means the $100 you got as a share because each share is worth $100, so rather than getting 100 bucks, you got actually one share, that is now not counted as part of your income. But if you had chosen to receive it as cash, it's counted as part of your income and therefore becomes taxable. And why is this important for higher income earners, particularly healthcare workers who traditionally have you know, higher incomes you know, compared to other professions, but of course, some healthcare workers don't have that higher income. But why is it an important thing for high-income earners in general. Even lawyers and accountants and engineers and IT consultants generally earn a higher income than the median Australian income. So why is that an important thing to learn? Higher-income earners often pay more tax. They are on a higher tax bracket. So technically, it's better to receive shares as dividends rather than cash as dividends because ATO treats them differently for taxation purposes. Otherwise, they'll need to pay tax on the dividends if they receive it as cash. But the thing is, the DSSP is also taxed, but not when you receive them, but only when you sell them. Therefore, the tax becomes capital gains tax, and we know that capital gains tax is taxed differently in Australia compared to income taxes, and this is because if you own the asset for greater than 12 months, you instantly get a 50% discount on your capital gains. So, yes, if you're a higher income earner, then DSSP makes sense. So what's my take on all this? I think that taxation alone should not be the only decision-making criteria. It's an important factor, don't get me wrong, but not the only factor. In other words, don't let the tail wag the dog. Do not make investment decisions just because of taxation reasons. Make investment decisions because the Devraka principle is you got to buy something that rises in value over the long term, and in that long term, it's got to produce an income. Otherwise, everything else, no matter what anyone tells you, is speculation. The other thing about LICs are they're closed-ended funds. LICs are relatively active, which means you have to choose a particular LIC, and you got to hope the company's executive and management team make the right decisions in terms of what they invest in. Remember, a listed investment company invests in other companies. That's an active decision. Now, generally speaking, LICs are pretty good investments depending on which ones they are and often are relatively low cost, very comparable to index funds and ETFs. But it's not the holy grail of investment that many people think they are. So, Anon, I hope this clarifies the reasons why high income earners may be better positioned to own LICs rather than ETFs from a purely taxation perspective, but that is just one factor to consider when making investment decisions. So that was my last question for this Q&A. So some interesting questions there, and hopefully we broke it down with individual level, particularly concepts and principles, and um, hopefully you guys found it useful. 
That's about it for this episode. Remember to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you may be using. Or leave a five-star rating on all of the platforms. That's even better. And please leave a positive review because every positive review means more and more people get access to these podcasts. I really appreciate it. The more ratings and reviews you leave, the more people get access to them. So please keep them coming. My name's Dev Raga and this is My Millenny Money Professional. And until next time, please make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.